Well, it's good to have the opportunity to open the Word of God again with you this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's a blessing. It's a it's a uh, it is a great blessing. It's a great privilege. So I'm very thankful. Let me start by reading the text, and I'm going to read from chapter 220 through to 3 verse 4, because we're really treating that segment as a whole this morning. And we've, we, last week we went over 220 to 3 verse 2, and this week we're going through those last two verses, 3 verses 3 and 4 in chapter 3. So let's read together Colossians chapter 3, uh, chapter 2 rather, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Pray with me. Father, as we open the text of your word this morning, we are conscious of our our tendency, Lord, just to overlook simple truths, rich truths that are there, that are intended to change us. And so this morning as we examine these two verses together as a congregation, as we consider your word afresh, and we think about what you've done and Lord, what that has done in us. We pray that you would both convict our hearts, not just of our need of change, but also, Lord, of joy and thanksgiving in what you've done. Father, we just need your help this morning. You've promised that your word will never go forth and return void. And Father, we pray this morning that indeed you would reap a harvest in our souls, that we would be a people. And the seed of the word would reap in us, Lord, a bountiful harvest this morning through your word. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started our time with the illustration of the monkey. And you'll remember, of course, this was in North Africa. They, they eat monkeys, and so they capture, to capture a monkey, they will take a gourd, which is a kind of a bulb type of, uh, thing, and it has a, has fruit in it. They hollow it out, and they, it has a hole in the top, and they put nuts in it, and the hole is big enough for the monkey to get his hand in and grab the nuts. But of course, once he's holding the nuts, his hand is too large to be able to take it out again. And we talked about how that the monkey doesn't have the brains, the sense, to close, you know, to let go of the food and escape. And so as a result of that, they come along in the morning, the monkey's still sitting there, still holding on to his peanuts, they knock him on the head and they turn him into a stew or casserole or something. And we saw that 
freedom for the monkey really means leaving behind the nuts, but he doesn't have the sense. And so his failure to leave behind what he's holding on to in the short term ensnares him and in the long term destroys him. Last week we saw that Paul rejected the worldly religion that had infiltrated the church at Colossae. We talked about how that in 2 verse 20, and particularly in 2 verse 21, he really lists these commands that the Colossians are holding on to. And they're acting out these commands, these rules that they've been given by this, you know, by false or unbelieving or godless or worldly influences in the hopes that these would make them clean or keep them clean and that that would make them acceptable to God. And he he tells the people there that you cannot live any longer based on these things because they are not helping you. In fact, he says, and I mentioned a new translation for 2.22 there, which says that these things all infer corruption by usage or corruption by the usage of the worldly things. And we saw there that the corruption is actually inside of us. And so we can't escape it. We can't abstain from the world in the hopes that somehow we will be clean. Our guilt is built into us, it's built into our flesh. And so he says there, you died and therefore why hold on to those things? And then in verse 3 verse 1, that you were raised and therefore you're to live based on new principles. So he's not saying there that you can totally live a godless life and do whatever you want to do. He says there, no, you no longer obey the world and its system. You no longer are allowing yourself to be influenced by the world, but now you're influenced by the indwelling Christ. And that's the point of verses 1 and 2 there, is that you are to seek or to long for or to desire to have as your goal and focus the things above, where Christ are, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, you are to think, and we talked about how that that's more than just thinking about the things above, but thinking the way God says to think. And so we're to think the things above not on the things that are on earth. And so in the verses that we have before us, in verses 3 and 4, he's really expanding on what he talks about in 2.20 and 3.1. In other words, he starts these passages by saying, you died, therefore why this? You rose, so therefore this is what you are to do. And in verses 3 and 4, he goes into more detail to explain this because he wants the people to be motivated to live according to the spirit of Christ within them, the spirit of life that Christ has placed in them when they were saved. He wants them to live the freedom that comes with salvation in Christ alone. And so he has these last two verses to motivate the believers at Colossae and to motivate you and I, and he provides us three motivational realities that are central to our union with Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, these three motivational realities of our union with Christ. And the first one, and if you want to look at this, you can look at this in the sense that he he really breaks this into three pieces, past, present, and future. And so that's kind of how we're going to look at it. And he starts there in verse 3, in the past, you died. Now as we look at each of these pieces... One of the important things to do is to recognize that there are two components to these things, right? So when he says you died, he has in mind there an objective reality, that is a reality that is true regardless of our experience 
or our feelings, and a subjective reality, something that we do feel or experience. And so both of these need to be held on to. Now, I should point out that as we go through here, Paul's primary focus is on the subjective, on the what you do, what you feel, what you experience. And I'll explain how that works. But his, So that's his focus here, but it's important that we recognize also at the same time the objective. So for these first two, we're going to talk about those two aspects, the objective and the subjective. And so if we go back in our text to 2 verses 12 and 15, we won't read it, but everything in chapter 2 verses 12 through 15 is in the passive voice. In other words, he's saying in 2 verse 12 to 15, here's a bunch of things that were done to you, not by you. This is the objective reality of what God has done. So he's already introduced that in 2 verses 12 through 15. And he says there that you were buried, that you were raised, and that God made you alive. Those are the three realities in the passive voice where we aren't the one doing them, but God is doing those things. In fact, one of those is actually the active voice, but he switches the subject, so it's the same point. So... In 12 to 15, these are things that God has done for us. And so he's saying there, you die. That's an objective reality where God did that and God now counts us as having died with Christ. And that's what he says in 2 verse 20, right? If you have died with Christ, so he's drawing on this, this objective element, God counts you, if you're a Christian this morning, God counts you as having died with Christ, and the benefit of that is that the death he died to sin is also counted as yours. That means the punishment that Christ endured on the cross is now counted as accounting for you. You are accounted for in Christ because of this objective reality because and because you are united with him. And so God has done this. But not only that, but, in, but here, just the, the, the idea here is an active idea. In other words, it's not so much just that this is a reality that happened in the past and it's just true and God did it and it doesn't really affect what you do here and now. No. The point, the very point Paul is making here is he's saying to you personally, each Colossian, each Christian reading, the Colossians, the Laodiceans read this as well, and he's saying to each one of them, you died. In fact, he's making an appeal to them. He's saying, didn't you die? Isn't that what you did? You died? And so there's this active reality, the subjective element that he's getting at here. He's going back and appealing to that subjective thing that took place in each believer that he's addressing. And so he's saying, you died. And so we have to ask the question, well, what's he referring to? Because as I look around the room this morning, we're all very much alive, aren't we? So how can we say we died? And here's an interesting theological reality that is often overlooked. Paul answers this question really in Romans chapter 6. And in Romans 6 he says there, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? See, Paul sees baptism as more than mere outward symbolism. 
Sometimes we say, well, it's an outward, you know, show of something that's already happened inwardly, and that's not entirely wrong. But there is more to it than that. And that's what Paul is appealing to here. Because for you and I to submit ourselves to baptism, we are declaring that I died with Christ. This is a personal declaration that we have been changed by God. It's a time when we publicly reject the world's, world's ways of living. It's a time when we publicly state our intention to live a new life in obedience to Christ. Now, at the time that the New Testament was written, the church was young. And so, and because the church was largely uh, looked down on, it was a bit of an outcast organization, there had been no cause to separate baptism from conversion. And so at this time, when you were saved, when you were converted to Christ, you would be baptized straight away because you understood that when you were becoming a Christian, there was a reality that accompanied that about what would happen to you and the life you would live after you've made that decision. And so baptism was always this time when we identify ourselves with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so while the objective part of our salvation takes place at uh, conversion, There is also a part where we declare with God, as a result of the work of God, that we have indeed died with Christ. And so baptism is a personal statement. It's a heartfelt statement. It's a statement of intention. And it's a statement of identification. And it's important after conversion to make a statement like this because it costs something to follow Christ. We cannot follow Christ if it costs us nothing. Baptism is an opportunity for us to make a public statement that we have counted the cost and we are leaving the world and we are leaving its promises and we are leaving its system of religion behind. Imagine, if you will, a proposal. Maybe some of you married ladies can think of this, in which a man asks his girlfriend to marry him. But rather than wait for an answer, he just says, he just assumes she says yes, and he starts making the plans and says, alright, here's the ring, stick it on, and away we go. Sometimes we are tempted to think of conversion like this. But what really happens is that God changes the heart, just like the man wins the heart of his wife, future wife, hopefully she says yes, right? Future wife. So the man wins the heart, God wins the heart, he changes our heart, And then he invites us to repent and follow him, and we actively respond. And baptism is, in a sense, a way of saying yes to that proposal that Christ makes to us. Baptism is our saying, I will, to Christ. Because for a woman who's saying yes to a man's proposal, she's also saying no to every other man. She's also, her yes is also a rejection of all that she now has to say no to. It means that she's now prioritizing her life, her social life particularly, around her association and her union with her husband. And so it is with us. Our baptism is really that time when we say, yes, I'm going to follow Christ, there's going to be a cost, and I'm willing to pay that price because I'm dying to the world and to its system, and I'm taking this new life in Christ. And it's important to recognize that these two, 
this is the reality. And we die to the world, it says in Colossians 2.20 here, and we die to the law, it says in Romans 7. And these two things are really interrelated, as I mentioned last week, because they really represent the influence and the thinking, the religious concepts of the world. See, John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so he's there taking those three things and he's saying this is how the world influences you. These are the world's systems of acceptability. These are the things that the world uses to conform you to its mold. And so Paul here is saying, don't be conformed to the religious ideas in 2 verse 22. Be conformed to the image of Christ in you through the Holy Spirit in 3 verses 1 and 2. So he's really saying the influence that you're driven by is what here differentiates you between someone who has died with Christ to the world and someone who still lives in the world. See, the world is a conforming influence. We discussed this again, like I said, last week. And we saw that last week in the workplace, the standards are about success, retirement, travel, and pleasure. Those are the kind of standards that our workplaces impose upon us to say, this is what you should be aiming for as a successful employee. In the home, where the, standard, the standards are often comfort, pleasure, or peace, and they're often dictated by a dominant individual. In society, the standards can be choice or independence or authenticity, or as we come sometimes have it today, self-expression. Even amongst peers, we don't escape this. In high school, you can probably remember, it was all about acceptability and popularity and respect, and it hasn't changed even though we become adults. It's just perhaps a little more subtle. But even in church, we don't escape this influence. In church, the standards of morality, respectability, influence, self-acceptance and self-affirmation, or even the affirmation of others. These are the things that we feel that, these are the things that conform us and change us and direct us. And what Paul is saying here is no. If you died to the world, as he says in 2.20, then all the influences of the world should be dead to you. And what should be driving you, what should be the guiding principle for you, is the, the, is the life of Christ within. And in fact, he says there in chapter in Romans chapter 7 that this is the exact reason why we died to the law, so that we could be joined to another. We cannot, we cannot be joined to Christ without first dying to all those other things. And so the objective part of this is where we died, Christ died to the world by the hand of the world for the world, carrying your sin so that you can be free from its penalty. That's the objective aspect of dying with Christ. But then there's this subjective reality of it where we declare this publicly to have taken place and we have decided in accordance with the death that we have died with Christ, the work that God has objectively done in us, that we have indeed died. And so Paul is here appealing to them and he's saying, you died. Why hang around with these old ways anymore? And so this is our first motivation. He's not just saying though that you died and so this way of living is out of character, inconsistent with your having died with Christ. 
In fact, he's saying here that we die so that we may have new life. And so we've seen the first influence, you died with Christ. The second influence, or the second motivation rather, is that your life is hidden with him. It says there in chapter 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so again, just like in the previous section, we have an object of reality and a subject of reality, so it is with our life. And we have to note here that we've moved from death to life. From death to life. When we were alive to the world, now we're dead to the world. When we were dead to God, now we're alive to God. Where we were dead in transgressions, we're now alive in, to righteousness. Where we were dead, or we were alive rather in sin, living in it, now we are dead to sin. And so from one sense, you know, we've moved from an old life to a new life. In another sense, we've moved from one form of death to another form of death. It just depends on the object that we're thinking about. But both are true, right? So when we come into the world, when we died rather to the world, we came alive to God. And when we came alive to God, we had to die to the world, to its influence, to the ways it tries to conform us and mold us to its patterns and standards. So the objective side of this is that God made us alive. He says there in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead, and this is we were actively dead, if you want to put it that way, in transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, when we were there, dead, God made us alive. He did that. It's an objective reality that is true regardless of how we feel. And there's great comfort in this. Because we don't have to be driven by our feelings as believers. Because if Christ lives in us, then the law of the Spirit of Christ is there to guide us into the truth, to work in us for his glory and his end. So this is an object of reality that that God did. And how did he do it? Well, look at verse 4. The beginning of verse 4 there says, When Christ, who is our life. Did you notice that? Christ is our life. There is no life apart from Christ. This is the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament. This is why we call ourselves Christians, not Spiritians, if you want to put it that way. Because it's not the Spirit himself, it's Christ in us that is the key here. Jesus said uh, in John 11, I am the resurrection and the, the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In 2 Timothy, Timothy, uh, Paul rather, whoever it is who wrote the letter, Paul starts the letter saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And if we are still still wondering about this, John puts it very bluntly in 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, Christ is our life. And this is why the resurrection is so important. Because if there is no resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, then he does not dwell in us. 
and we have no life. How do we get Christ? How do we have this life? And this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So to make this clear, again in Romans 8, Paul says there, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. And so here's the key thing I want you to know here, is that this objective reality, Christ in you, this the Spirit of Christ is given to us to mediate the life of Christ to us. And this is really important today, because there is so much misinformation about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, we are told, is sent to empower us. Sometimes we need the baptism of the Spirit to give us good feelings. We need the Spirit to make us speak in tongues. Some people talk about the Holy Spirit as if He saves us. Other people talk about how that we want to live in the, the power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit. We want the gifts of the Spirit. But no, that's not the point. Listen to what Jesus said. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. This is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Helper. You know him. Why do you know him? How can the disciples, when they're standing there pre-Pentecost, know this helper? Because, and here's the wording, the literal Greek says, because at the side of you, he remains. In other words, you are standing in the presence of the comforter right now, disciples. And he will be in you. Christ is saying when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is coming to mediate His own presence in His disciples. So rather than focusing on all these crazy ideas about what the Holy Spirit is there to do, the big question is, what would Christ do right now? Because that's why He is here in me to help me to do what is right in His eyes. So the role of the Holy Spirit is to mediate Christ to us. This is an objective reality. And he had to do this because we need that life. When we get that life, then we are able to make new decisions. Then we are able to change. Because without the life of Christ in us, all that we have is the deadness of the flesh. And so we need the life of Christ to impart to us godly desires, to impart to us truthful thinking, to accord our way of thinking with what he's revealed in his word. So the Holy Spirit gives life to our souls even while our bodies are yet still decaying. But Paul here is, like I mentioned earlier, primarily interested not in the objective but in the subjective. And so here he's not appealing to the fact that you have the life of Christ in you. That's true and that's foundational. But he's really giving this a, a, a subjective idea. Your life is hidden with Christ. You see where he's pointing here? He's not pointing them just to the life within. He's saying your life is hidden with Christ. And that word hidden is important. We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
What he's saying here is that their existence, their being, their very, the focus of their very life is bound up in heaven where Christ is not here on earth. When Jesus was speaking the Sermon on the Mount, one of the key lines there, he gives away the idea of what he has in mind here. And he said there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why? Because the focus of your heart determines the direction of your life. That's the subjective appeal that he has in place here. He's saying Christ is your life, your heart is there. Right? That's your very being. That's your very heart. That's all that is, your life is about now is about Christ. And so your focus should be there. But he's also saying that it's hidden. See, what he wants the Colossians and what he wants you and I to do is to stop placing value on what the world values and being driven by the way the world is driven, by the old ways, by the things that appeal to the flesh and instead recognize that Christ is true wealth. In fact, he says just at the beginning of chapter 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom and knowledge? They are hidden in Christ. You want wealth and abundance? Well, get this, we're partakers in, an, in the inheritance of Christ which has not yet been manifest. You want recognition? Well, Christ is king and we've been promised to reign with him. So all that we could possibly want, all that this world offers us is a cheap imitation by comparison to all that there is in Christ. And so what Christ is, what Paul is saying here is that our treasure is in heaven where Christ is. And in this sense, our treasure, our longing, our desire is hidden with Christ and is not here, not in plain sight. Does this describe your life? Is your life, is your heart, is your focus hidden with Christ? Is what you value found here on earth or is it hidden in heaven? Is your focus on what you can get here, are you looking at the cheap imitations, or is it hidden with Christ? Is your desire for the things that you see, or what will yet be revealed? See, part of our break with the world, it's not just a a change of life, there is that, but it's also a change of values. It's a change in what we think of as being valuable, what we think of as being a worthwhile pursuit. Part of our break with the world is to value instead the rule and the glory and the character of God that is seen in the character of Christ. And we glory when we see that formed in us. And when we see it formed in brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we see it formed in the church. We look at that and we say, here a little part of what's hidden is being revealed. And so there's a subjective side. Yes, you've been given life regardless of how you feel. But the truth is that your life, your focus, your emphasis, everything about you is now in heaven. We died that we may have life. And Christ himself is that life. And the Holy Spirit mediates the life of Christ to us now. This gives life to our souls but not yet to our bodies. But it is not only Christ present now through his spirit. He is also our treasure and our hearts long for him to be revealed in us and ultimately to be revealed in this world 
And so we should not be motivated, we should rather be motivated to abandon worldly religion, worldly ideas, worldly influences, and walk by the Holy Spirit, because first of all, we died with Christ. Secondly, our life is hidden with Christ. And third, Paul points forward to what will yet come for those in Christ. See that he said there, this is hidden, this is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ. But look at verse 4. When Christ is revealed, there is coming a day when all that is hidden will be revealed. And the amazing truth is that he's saying here that you and I will be revealed with him in glory. That is something to look forward to. And if our hearts are truly in heaven, that will make us rejoice. But if our hearts are here on earth, it will temper that joy. So he says there that we have much more to await. See, the interesting thing was that in the previous two, you died, there's an objective and a subjective reality. When you when it talks about how that you have been brought to life and your life is hidden, there's an objective and a subjective reality. But what he's saying here is there is coming a time where those objective and subjective realities will become one and everything that is actually true, objectively true, will be subjectively experienced. He's pointing forward to a time when Christ will not figuratively come, not come in a spiritual way, but we will look and see him physically coming. At least the world will look. And we will be coming with him. What is currently hidden will be revealed. What is currently unseen will become visible. What is now concealed will be fully manifested. And what we currently look for will become a reality. And there's several steps to this, several stages. See, right now... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart, but because, although, even though our outer man is decaying, right, we don't lose heart because of that, because even so that's the case, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And he's pointing to the reality of our current existence, that there is this physical existence which gets in the way of the reality that is there. But that division between our bodies and the corruption that's in our bodies and the purity of the work of Christ is going to give way. Because one day soon, it starts with the redemption of the body. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, We ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. It hasn't happened yet. Which is the redemption of our body. You see, Christ has redeemed our souls but not our bodies. And so this is the folly of health, wealth, and prosperity preaching, is that it's focused on the things that God has not yet redeemed. And it focuses you on the world and its ways. And Paul is saying, no, the great motivation for abandoning the world is hidden and is yet to be revealed. So we're waiting for the redemption of the body. And he describes when that's going to happen. He says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will, will rise. Physical bodies will rise from the dead. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be, always be with the Lord. Our bodies will be 
redeemed. And it's not the whole thing that that Paul has in mind here, but it is a necessary part. But there's more here. In fact, we get hints of it in other parts of Scripture. In fact, in in Ephesians 5, talking about marriage, Paul alludes to this, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he's comparing the marriage of the the husband particularly with the work of Christ. But let's unpack that. Let's just carry on reading. So that he might sanctify her, so that Christ would sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, the word. Why would he do that? So that he might present present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so Paul here is looking at the church and saying the church is glorious because it's pure, because it's holy. But what's he doing with it? He's presenting the church to himself. So it turns out that the indwelling Christ now is not the fullness of what we have. In fact, our whole union, as we talk about it now with Christ, is not yet complete. We're really, if you want to put it this way, in the betrothal period. In the old, in the New Testament times, if you look at Joseph and Mary, for instance, there was this period of time in which they were counted as betrothed. They were really married legally. And so Joseph, when he found Mary was pregnant, he had to file for divorce if he wanted to get rid of her. He couldn't just take the ring off her finger and say it's all done. There was proper legal proceedings. It's the same here. When we are in union with Christ, in union with Christ in this life, that's the kind of period we're in. It's this betrothal period. The fullness is yet to come. It says in Ephesians that the Spirit of Christ is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, which is the church, to the praise of His glory. See, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the pledge. He's like the promissory note or the the signed contract, if you will. He's the first fruits. It's like he's the engagement ring or the entree. You can pick whatever metaphor you feel so inclined to go for. But the Holy Spirit dwelling in us now is not the end game. See, our union with Christ, our having died with him, our having been raised with him, our new life with him is the first step toward something bigger. And he talks about this in Revelation chapter 19. He says there, I heard, this is John talking, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. In fact, turn to Revelation 19 and read this with me if you like. Reading from verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord, the God, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the words, the true words of God. Notice here that the bride makes herself ready. She's looking forward to this day. She's purposing and preparing for it. 
Are you preparing for that great union day with Christ where we will no longer be in this betrothal period but where our union with him will be consummated? When the deposit we have here is fully transacted? When the partial redemption we have is fully redeemed? When our first fruits give way to the full harvest? And when our new life really begins at that ceremony and is marked by it? That's what we all look forward to. See, all that we have here, the riches we have in Christ now are hidden because the fullness of it is yet to be revealed. Well, you might say, well, that's all well and good, but it says there that we will be revealed with Christ, not to Christ. Well, that's true. But those two things, the redemption of the body and the marriage with Christ, come before our prequels to the revealing. If you're still in Revelation 19, look at verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's the revelation. Of Christ. That's the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But remember what it said in Colossians? When Christ is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. Remember that? We'll carry on in the next verse. The armies of heaven, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Didn't we see that just a minute ago? People clothed with fine linen, white and clean. We saw that back in verse 8. It was given to the bride to clothe herself in fine linen, white and clean. You see what's going on here? Revelation 19 is telling us about the final consummation of our union with Christ and then the revealing of Christ and us being revealed with him in glory. There's the glory which we had back in the, the church made herself ready and was glorious and then we have the glory of Christ with which we join him in his revelation And there's one more thing worth pointing out here, and that is that Christ comes to conquer. He comes to judge, and he comes to reign. It says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. And in in Revelation 3.21, to the church of the Colossians, to the church of the Laodiceans, who would also read Colossians, by the way, he said, to him who overcomes, I will grant for him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see what's happening here? Not only are we revealed with him, but we reign with him. In other words, we will be freed from this body of death. We will be the bride of Christ. We will be with him forever, united with him in an inseparable bond. We will experience redeemed bodies. We will share in all that is his, and we will reign with him. Let me ask this, because this is Paul's point. Does that motivate you? Does that change your perspective of the way the world's influence is lived out and is exposed in your own life? Because that's what Paul is trying to do here. He's saying, you Colossians, why submit yourselves to rules? Because these rules are all based in worthless, worldly religion. And all of this is coming. The fullness, the riches of all that God has done for us by uniting us with Christ is yet to be fully revealed. And his point is this. Why dabble 
in that which is corruptible, in that which is passing away, in the ideas of religion that the Colossians are stuck in, that are all about the idea that you get corrupted by the world. Christ has redeemed us, and the fullness of that redemption is yet to be fully revealed. And so he gives them these three motivating realities from the union with Christ. They died with him. That is a subject of an object of peace. Their life is hidden with him. Again, is a subject of and an object of peace. We are intimately involved in that union with Christ. But you will be revealed with him. Your body will be re- redeemed. You'll get a new body. One that doesn't corrupt, one that doesn't decay, one that will live forever, and you'll be fully united to Christ as his bride. You will forever be with him. You will appear with him when he appears, and you will reign with him. See, here's the thing. God hasn't just decided to save us. Yes, that would glorify him. That would glorify him. His goal is much greater than that. In fact, it says in Ephesians through verse 7, that he has chosen to use those who he redeems by his own work to demonstrate for all eternity the riches, not of his mercy, not of his mercy, he's not just showing off the riches of his mercy, he is doing that, but he's not just doing that, but he's showing off the riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He's putting us on display as believers, as those who follow Christ, as examples of how kind he can be. The better we understand the fullness of what God has done for us in Christ, the easier it will be to look past the day-to-day of this life, and the easier it will be to seek the things above and to think the things above, and the world's influence will grow increasingly insignificant. But the way to do this is to grow in our understanding of what Christ has done. To exalt Christ in our understanding so that we know him better. So that we know the riches that are in him more intimately. So that we associate our desires and our heart more fully with him. And as we do that, the influence of the world will fall away. Because why would we conform ourselves to the world's idea of religion and what seems right when we'll reign with Christ? Why pursue the world's idea of success when we'll share in the glory of Christ? Why focus on wealth on earth when our riches are hidden in heaven and will one day be revealed for all? So this morning, if you've never turned from the world, and you've never turned from sin, you've never made that declaration, or even if you've never made it publicly, I died with Christ and I died to the world because I want to live with Christ. I want to live for him. Then don't leave here today without talking to us about it. Resolve today to reject the ideas of the world, the influences of the world, the rules and the laws that the world gives us to look good. Resolve to live with a heart focused on Christ and his glory. Resolve to put aside worthless Sunday worship. And to live every day in step with the Spirit of Christ. Resolve to prepare for that great wedding day that will come, that we may be found to be a bride worthy of our groom. And resolve to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. See, do you think the monkey would even bother putting his hand back into the gourd to get those peanuts 
if he knew that behind all the leaves and the trees around him was rich fruit, ready to be taken, if it was just revealed? Why seek the little we can't have that will destroy us when riches that we need are found in Christ? Let us let go of the world's ways and influences and live to honour him, looking forward to the fullness of his promise, rather than just off-casts thrown to us from the world. We have all this and we have more as part of our union with Christ. And let's give thanks to him for that. Father, we are incredibly thankful for all that you've done for us in Christ. Who are we, O Lord? Who are we, your enemies, your sinful people who rebelled against you? And yet, Lord, you showed us mercy and then you've poured upon us grace to demonstrate your kindness forever to all the universe so that all may know every created being, past, present and future, would see that you are a good and kind God. Lord, forgive us for overlooking these things. Forgive us for setting our mind on the promises of this world. Lord, indeed, help us to be thankful for all that we get in this world and to honour you for the way you bless us in this world. But Lord, may we set our hope fully on the life that is still hidden but will be revealed in the future. Work in us for this end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.